Before we do today's episode, I just need to say I've got a cold, so please forgive the way my voice sounds on this one. Well, hello, and welcome to episode four of Anxious Laughter, the podcast about my life, my memories, and my mental health. So this episode is going to be about music. There was a little taster. I did the bonus episode that you might have listened to about the theme of the podcast last week. But this time we're going to talk about music proper. Music's always been part of my life. And I think that anybody who knows me now and anybody who has known me will know that I love listening to music. I love playing music. I play quite a few musical instruments. and It's very important to me. The first thing I remember musically in my life was a little record player that my granddad bought me. It wasn't one of those Toby ones with the the records with the bumps on that's a bit like a musical box that you put in and and wind up and go round. It was a proper 45 record player. Um, I can't remember whether it was battery. It must have been battery powered, not mains powered, surely. But I remember I had lots of 45s, mostly 45s of Boney M records. I used to listen to them a lot. It's a habit I've not really grown out of, of playing a song to death until I've listened to it so many times, I don't need to listen to it again because I could just play it in my mind. The fact that I listen to all these Boney M songs probably explains why, even now, I know the most obscure Boney M songs. Do you know there's a Boney M song called Never Change Lovers in the Middle of the Night? Yeah. I'm not making that up. The 70s was a weird place. There are songs that you don't expect. There's that one from Boney M. There's also an ABBA song called Two for the Price of One. Now, the narrative of this song, it's a story song, is a guy works cleaning the local railway station and has quite a humdrum life. So he responds to a personal ad and he specifically responds to a personal ad, which says, if you respond to me, you get two for the price of one. And, you know, well, hey, we all know what he's thinking. And anyway, the song goes on through this and they have a phone call and he goes around to to the woman's flat and meets her. And then he kind of says, oh, well, in the advert, you said it was two for the price of one. And then the song ends with her saying, yes, here's my mother. And then there's this big umpar finish. Seriously, go and seek it out. It sounds like I'm making that up. I am not. It's called Two for the Price of One. It's by ABBA. But anyway, back then, I was listening to these songs by Boney M. I was so young. I had no idea what they were about. I think my musical influences came from both parents, really. And my parents gave me very different musical influences. My mum's musical tastes were always slightly more interesting I mean interesting in that sense and it was David Bowie it was Pink Floyd it was Led Zeppelin it was King Crimson Peter Gabriel Um, my dad's musical tastes were Rolling Stones and Beach Boys I think actually my dad was slightly older than my mum and I don't know whether that was what was going on. I don't know whether the, my mum's musical taste from more 70s and my dad's musical taste from more 60s. I've often thought that when I think of my musical taste, when I think of the area that I can remember the most songs and that the most songs mean so much to me, I actually find that it's the 80s, late 80s. 
And I wonder whether musical taste is fixed in your teens. I mean, obviously we listen to new things and we pick up new things, but I wonder whether the music that you really take to heart and really take inside yourself is the music that you're listening to in those formative years, in the teenage years. It certainly was with me, and that would tally with the music that both my mum listened to and my dad listened to as I was growing up. I remember I used to be fascinated with the mechanics of music as well. I remember that I used to love listening to Dark Side of the Moon and especially the bit where you had a helicopter flying from side to side across the speakers. I'd look at the needle on the on the record and I'd wonder to myself, how do you get that from a single needle in a single groove? It'd be many, many years before I find out the real answer. But I convinced myself, because I knew that you got special stereo styluses, so I convinced myself that what happened was that you had two needles and you had two parallel grooves and two spirals that never intersected but wound round each other to the centre of the record and that one went in each, one was left, one was right. You know, that theory stuck with me a lot longer than it should have done. And actually, it was only last year, it was 2018, when my manager at work at the time, in in a conversation where I hadn't asked the question, just happened to explain to me how you get stereo from a single stylus on a record. I'm not going to explain it here. I'll post a link on Facebook if anybody's interested, but it is fascinating. There was a big record player in my dad's front room. It was, it was wooden. It stood on four legs. It was enormous. I've no idea what was inside it. The speaker stood at the end and then you had the turntable at the top. It didn't have anything else, so I have no idea what the rest of the space was taken up with. I guess it was for the aesthetic. It was the 70s. It was big and it was brown, as were the 70s. I listened to a lot of music, but I was never really one for performing music when I was very young. Now, I've talked previously about hiding in the crowd instead of standing up playing recorder at school, and that was kind of my attitude to it. I was interested in learning to play the recorder, but I wasn't particularly interested in anybody else hearing me play the recorder. The recorder's a funny little instrument, and I think it's where everybody starts on their musical journey. I don't know why, because it's not actually a particularly easy instrument to play. It would be much easier to teach people to play a keyboard. But no, we're all handed a recorder, and we have to manage the fingering and it's actually quite complex and I I can't remember what the term's called but I can remember that when you're playing the recorder to get some notes you have to half cover some holes that's quite complicated motor skills for that age and I was never very good at the recorder and I don't know if anybody does ever become good at the recorder do you get do you get recorder concertos? You probably do. I've never really thought about it. I just consider the recorder something that people play at school. I mean, I was an okay recorder player. I could get some notes out of it. And when we were playing as a group of four, me with the three girls who played recorder, we sounded okay. But it never really resonated with me. Now, Mr. Sexton, who was the music teacher back then, he, he was the one who first encouraged me musically. In my mind, he looks like Kenny Everett. I've discovered, well, four episodes in, and I've discovered I've got this habit of overlaying people onto famous people from the time or famous people that I know now. But in my mind, 
Rick Sexton is Kenny Everett. He was a nice guy. He was very friendly and he really encouraged my interest in music. He was the one who taught me how to play a recorder. He was the one who first suggested that I listen to different types of music. He was the first one to introduce me to classical music, with, with a small C, not with a capital C, to orchestral classical music. Now, there were rumours he was gay. Now, I don't remember who used to talk about this, but the rumours were certainly flying round. Now, bear in mind, this was late 70s, early 80s. Gay wasn't a word you said. It was a word you whispered. And to find out someone was gay, you'd never ask them if they were attracted to somebody of the same sex. You'd look for clues. And I remember the clue with Mr Sexton was that he wore his keys on a clip-on keyring thing hanging from his belt at the front. And somebody once said to me, it means he's gay because he's hanging his keys on that side. Now, I've no idea whether that's true. I mean, since I came out, nobody's given me a rule book and said I have to carry my keys on a certain side. But maybe back then, it was a signal. You know, back then, historically, gay men couldn't meet other gay men in the way they do now. So maybe they did it by wearing their keys in a particular way. I don't know. I've no idea whether he was gay or is gay. He's probably still alive, actually. But I've I've no idea. But there certainly they were the rumours. He lived up the road from my mum up in Rock Ferry, opposite what's now the Tesco Metro, kind of around there. Used to see him out and about sometimes, but never spoke to him. You never did with teachers, did you? It was a it was a school thing. They weren't real people in that sense. I remember saying goodbye to Mr. Sexton when I left um, primary school went on to secondary school and I remember actually being um, quite sad to say goodbye to him I think I realised I'd probably never see him again relationships with teachers are a strange thing teachers can become very influential they can become very important figures in your young life but you never see them outside school you never see them again I mean, I've mentioned that I saw a couple of my teachers after leaving secondary school, but never in a planned way and never in a way that we were going to maintain contact. It was just passing our lives intersecting again and we say hello. So off I went to secondary school and we've done that previously. And then there was Mr. Hams. Now, Mr. Hams was a music teacher who, again, he encouraged my interest in music. Now, by then, I'd shifted from recorder to violin. As I said before, equally not an instrument that it's easy to make sound nice. I mean, professional violin players can make it sound lovely. They can make it weep. They can make such evocative sounds from the strings. I couldn't. It was scratchy and a bit annoying to listen to. I've no idea how my family put up with me practising. It must have been a terrible din. I was never really into the violin as an instrument. There's something about solo instruments that never really, never really captured me. There was something about having the ability to create the complete tune, to create the complete sound of what I was playing myself. Now, I never really got on with orchestral playing either. One of the deals of having free 
school music lessons was that you had to play as part of an orchestra on a Saturday. And also there were school orchestras, there were school concerts, and it was it was part of the deal. Um, I was always happier fiddling about on the piano. Now, I never had piano lessons, and I still haven't. But ever since a very early age, I'd had a Casio keyboard, and then that was upgraded to one that had a few more sounds, and then that was upgraded to another one. And then... When I was about 11, my mum moved into a new house and she bought me my first piano. It was a slightly beaten up upright piano, but it was fine. It was tuned and it, it played well. And I got so much more enjoyment out of playing the piano than I did from playing the violin. For me, it was about playing songs that I knew and recognised. It was about being able to reproduce the sounds that I liked. And on a piano, you could buy sheet music of popular hits and your favourite artists, and you can play the song. I wasn't singing by then. I'd, I'd not in any way developed the ability to sing. But I could play the songs on the piano. And I had a book of Beatles sheet music, and I remember I went through that and played those to death. I remember one school concert persuading Mr. Hams that actually, instead of giving a performance on the violin, I could give a performance on the piano. It wasn't great, to be honest. Now, my piano playing is not brilliant. It's not bad, but it's not brilliant. I'm not a classically trained pianist. I can't go there and play the most complex classical pieces, bringing out all of the voices that you're supposed to hear. That's not what I do. That's not what I find fun. For me, playing the piano is about making sounds that I enjoy, making sounds that I like. These days, it's about accompanying myself when I sing. It's about writing songs. It's about creating a soundscape rather than just a melody. I describe my piano playing as fluid, but flawed. If I'm playing the piano, I can string it together. It flows. It sounds like it's supposed to sound. But I'm not reading the music in detail. I'm reading the chords, I know the song, and I'm improvising something in the right key that sounds right for that song. And that's fine, that works for what I do. But that's what I've always done. And I remember being a keen piano player, Mr. Hams tried to encourage me to accompany others. So there'd be others playing the clarinet or other instruments. It was always either the clarinet or the violin. But anyway, people playing other instruments at school. And I would try to play the piano part to accompany them. And I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't sight read to the point that somebody else could rely on what I was going to play. That dented my confidence, actually. At home, I was a competent piano player. But when put in front of other people, I was not a piano player. I think that's, that's lived with me now. When I'm singing in the studio, when I'm playing in the studio, I'm confident I can let myself go in the music. I can let myself play in the music. I enjoy it. I don't really enjoy performing in front of other people. 
Now, there's a there's a paradox here. Is paradox the right word? Maybe contradiction. I will happily do karaoke. I'm fine standing in front of a group of people singing a solo song. To most people, that's their idea of pretty much hell, but not for me. You know, one of the things that I've realised recently is that I get anxious about the things that other people don't get anxious about, and I don't get anxious about the things that other people do. But we'll come back to karaoke in a bit. I don't remember learning much music theory. I must have done, because I know it, and it's in there now, and I can talk the right language, and I can, I can understand what's going on in a piece of music. So it must have been taught to me, but I don't remember learning about cadences and time signatures and key signatures. I must have done, though, at some point. A few years ago, I got a guitar. Um, I'd had a guitar for a few years I'd not really bothered with, but then about 20 years ago, just under 20 years ago, my partner bought me a guitar. And I started strumming and I started playing and actually I taught myself how to play guitar. Again, that's a that's that's an instrument where you can create the whole song. That's an instrument where you can create everything you need to create. It's a bit like the piano in that respect, that you don't need anybody else to accompany you. It's something that you can do privately. It's something where you don't have to be exposed to other people. My guitar playing is nowhere near as good as even my piano playing. I can strum some chords and I can knock out a solo on an electric guitar, but I am not a guitar player. You know, guitar playing for me is a necessity of sometimes I want to write a song on the guitar. Sometimes I want to record a song with a bit of guitar on. But I'm not really a guitar player. Back at school, I had to play in the school orchestra. Now, I used to play in the second violins. Now, given how few violin players there were, it wasn't a great compliment to be in the second violins. But Mr. Hams used to do arrangements of pieces where he'd give the tunes of the second violins. So sometimes we got interesting things to do. I remember when we were playing an arrangement of Beethoven's Ninth in a school concert, we got the famous tune. I was so excited. I couldn't play it, of course. I was a terrible violin player, but I was still giving it a good go. Giving it a good go was what I did in school concerts. There was a teacher at school called Dr. Gopsil. Now, he's going to crop up again at some point. He was a, he was a polyglot and a polymath. And one of the things he did was he had a band, which was like a folk band. So a couple of violin players and he would play. I can't remember what he played. Ooh, that's interesting. Can't remember what he played. Anyway, it was a few of us, about eight of us, and we'd play slightly more complex German folk songs in school concerts. Now, somebody once said to me of my performance... My face looked terrified, but my fingers looked like they knew what they were doing. To be honest, it was terrible. I had no interest in playing the violin, and so practising was a chore. I wasn't practising because I enjoyed it or wanted to get better. I was practising because that was what was expected of me. 
All my spare time when I wanted to enjoy myself, I'd go and sit at the piano rather than stand and play the violin. And so when it came to the concerts, I kind of knew, but I was I was fudging it. I was fudging it in the fast bit. I was I was missing out the quavers and only playing the crotchets. I did once do Eleanor Rigby as a piano solo. I I remember it was it was okay, but it wasn't as good as the people who were actually piano players doing their solos. And I remember that I used to speed up in the bits that I knew and slow down in the bits that I didn't. And you, you can style that out. You can claim that's a stylistic choice when you're playing solo. <laughs> oh, I wonder if I can still play Eleanor Rigby from memory on the piano. Of course, I still listen to music now as well as playing it. I think listening to music came back to me when I got my own car. My own car was a private space. I, I guess as lots of people do when they're young and get a car, I'd sometimes just go out driving for the sake of it. I mean, these days I'm not a great fan of driving, but back then it was, it represented freedom. It represented my own space. And I used to have a CD player in the car and I'd listen to, well, mostly Meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler. Very, very loud in the car. I know lots of obscure Meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler album tracks thanks to those days. But for me, music is still largely a private thing. It's something where I don't have to allow other people in. I have emotional reactions to music, but I don't want to share those emotional reactions with other people. That's something private that I want to keep for myself. So the car, well, I do have a car, but... These days, I tend to listen to music on earphones. It's the only time I really do listen to music, actually. I walk to and from work most days, and it's about an hour in each direction. And I do have earphones, and if I'm not listening to a podcast or listening to Radio 4, then I put music on shuffle, and I listen to it, and I'm in my own little world. Only I can hear that music. It's not a shared experience with other people. It's a private experience. I remember back at university, I came home one day and I'd been into town and bought a new CD and, and come back and I bumped into somebody else who was walking back to college with me. She was at the same college and stayed in the same accommodation block. And she asked me what I bought and I showed her the CV and she said, oh, maybe we could listen to it together sometime. That was an anathema to me. I never thought that you would listen to music together with somebody else. Music to me had always been a thing that you did privately. It was a private world that you retreated into. Of course, these days I do listen to music with other people and I do sometimes go to concerts, although nowhere near as regularly as I used to. But mostly I listen to music on my own. I listen to music when I want to feel something to the exclusion of other people. I've got a little recording studio here at home and I go in there and I sing and I play. I don't really invite anyone else in. I mean, my partner would be welcome to come in and join in. Friends would be welcome to come and join in. But I don't go out of my way to invite other people in. It's something I do on my own for myself. It's my escape from the world. 
You know, I touched on classical music earlier, and I've got a confession here. I don't really like orchestral classical music. And I realise saying that, it makes me feel as if I'm admitting a terrible sin. I get that it can be emotional, and I get that it can have parts that are stirring, and I get that it can have parts that are moving, but it feels to me like a test match. It's like cricket, it goes on for so long and occasionally something interesting happens, but you have to sit through all the bits in the middle where the second violins and the oboe are just faffing around the theme for ten minutes before you get back to the bit with the timpani. As you can probably tell, I don't like cricket either. I I write music as well sometimes. I don't write very often. My rate of writing new songs is, if I'm lucky, one a year. I keep saying to myself that I'm going to write more. I keep saying to myself that I'm going to write some songs and I'm going to release them. I'm going to record them and I'm going to release them. I never do, though. And yeah, sure, like everything else in life, I beat myself up about it. I say, oh, I'm going to release that, and I didn't. And then I get concerned that I said I was going to do a thing I didn't. And then I feel bad about the fact that I haven't written any music. And then I start pressuring myself to write music. And then the music that I write is crap because I'm writing it under pressure rather than because I want to. I found um, about six months ago now, I found a book of songs I'd written 20 years ago. I could still remember how to play them. I could still remember how they went. I've got a little bit better these days. I do sometimes post videos on Facebook and sometimes send videos to friends of me singing or playing. But, you know, maybe one day I will actually sit down and record an album. I think I need the discipline. I, I know I could do it, technically. I just, for me, I don't want music to be a chore. I don't want this to be something that I have to do because I've got a song that I've promised to release that I want to finish. I want it to be something that I that I do because I'm enjoying it. That I do because I want to. And for me, that is mostly just playing around with an idea and then moving on to another idea and moving on to another idea. I mean, I enjoy my time out in the studio. I sing a lot these days. I've been singing for years. So... Even back at Cambridge, me and a group of friends used to sing Puff the Magic Dragon. It actually really rather good harmonies. Do you know, the weird thing was we have a, a party here at home every year and um, quite a few of the friends that I was friends with back then come along to the party and actually a few of us sang Puff the Magic Dragon this year and, you know, weirdly we could still remember the harmonies. I... Another confession from me here. I've been singing for years, but over the past couple of years, I've started to take singing lessons. Now, I'm not even sure. I'm, I, I'm so reluctant to reveal that to the world. I'm not even sure that is going to stay in the cut for this podcast. The problem is, of course, there's an expectation. I'm not a great singer. I've got the voice I've got. I've got the... I've got the the physical structures I've got, and that's how my voice is made. That's why my voice sounds the way it does. I, yes, today I've got a cold, so it sounds a bit different, but this is my voice. 
I've got the vocal range I've got, and sure, training can add a little bit on the bottom, and with the right technique, you can add quite a bit on the top, but it's not going to fundamentally change the sound of my voice. It's not going to change the fact I'm me when I sing. Yes, I can now, you know, I can now tell the difference between head voice falsetto and head voice mix, and I can get up an octave and a half further than I used to be able to. Great. But it puts the pressure on. See, the reason that I don't want to tell people I'm doing singing lessons is that quite often we do karaoke at parties. And there is such an expectation that if you've had singing lessons, you're going to be a great singer. Now, if I said to somebody who was at the party, oh, I've had singing lessons, one of two things would happen. They'd either say, oh, we could tell. Or they'd say, oh, I thought you'd be better than that then. And it's it's disheartening. You know, I'll be truthful. The karaoke at this year's party actually did erode my singing confidence a bit. I know I'm a good singer. I know that if I go into the studio and I'm on my own and I'm warmed up and I know the song, I could give a really belting vocal performance. When I'm in the lessons with my singing teacher, I hit some clear, ringing, belted notes, which are sound lovely. Karaoke at a party is very different. It's a bit raucous. You don't really know the song. You've not warmed up. You're with other people. You can carry a tune, but the odd note's going to be out. You've never sung this song before, so you're trying to pitch it as you go. I remember Len Goodman he used to be a judge on Strictly once, said that when he goes to weddings, he never dances. Because if he does give it the full-on ballroom treatment, people say, oh, well, look at him. And if he doesn't, people say, oh, I thought he was a good dancer. He's terrible. And my singing teacher said this to me. When I started the singing lessons, he said to me, this process is going to ruin karaoke for you. Because you could either... Do a song that you know and you've rehearsed and it will be obvious that you know and you rehearse it and actually people will say, oh, it's only a bit of fun. Why are you taking it so seriously? And if you don't, if you do a song that you don't know, people will say, oh, I thought you were a good singer. You can't win. Now, the truth is I will do karaoke next year and I will sound OK, not my best. And I'm hoping that my confidence will be a bit better by then and so it won't it won't knock it quite as much but music's going to be with me forever you know i i said quite a few years ago now that i was going to be somebody who kept up with new music you know people who were older than me used to always talk about the music from their youth and i'd think oh but there's so much great new music and then, what's happened to me? Well, I listen to music from my youth. The songs that can really move me, even the songs that can really move me that I think are modern songs, are now 20 years old. New music just doesn't do it for me. And that's not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with new music. I'm never going to turn into one of these people that complains about the lack of tune or the lack of melody. Or Music changes. Music evolves. 
I just think that maybe I've stopped changing with it. You know, having said that, I do like the latest Taylor Swift song. So, you know, I am down with the kids, aren't I? So, that's me and music. Thanks for listening. I realise that we've taken a, a turning away from the chronology of my life. We'll get back there. I've actually, I've been, I think I said last time that the plan is that this podcast will start to have other people on it. That plan's starting to come together. So in a few episodes time, we'll be having some other people on. I'm not going to say who yet or what we'll be talking about, but we'll have other people on here and we're going to explore some things beyond my experience. You know, I have experience and I think I have a story to tell, but I am who I am. And I'm really looking forward to having some other people share their stories. But for now, this is me with a cold over and out. This episode of Anxious Laughter was recorded on the 23rd of August 2019 with a cold. It was written, read, recorded and edited by me, Dan McNeil.